It's Tuesday, June 27th, 2023, and welcome back to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. I'm not the only Hoover Fellow who is podcasting these days. I suggest you go to our website, which is hoover.org. Go to the tab at the top of the homepage. It says commentary. Head over to where it says multimedia, and up will pop all of our audio podcasts as we list them. There are 16 in all. Proud to say that my humble little podcast is at the top of that list, and I think that's a reflection of the quality of guests that I get with the Hoover Institution, today being no exception. My guest today is Mackie Raymond. Mackie is a Hoover Institution Distinguished Research Fellow and founder and director of the Center for Research and Education Outcomes, or CREDO for short, at Stanford University. Mackie's CREDO team conducts independent research and evaluation of programs that aim to improve outcomes for students in America's K-12 public schools. That research done in collaboration with approximately 30 state education agencies across the country. Credo's mantra is, quote, we let the data speak. So in the spirit of that sentiment, this podcast will be no different. Mackie will be speaking about what her team's latest data says about the state of America's charter schools. Mackie, thanks for coming on the podcast. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So this study, which is technically the National Charter School Study 3 or NCSS3, as you very smart people like to give initials to, I can't escape this study, Mackie. I am something of a information hound. I spend an unhealthy amount, amount of time on the internet looking for news and information that comes in handy for podcasting and so forth. This study keeps popping up. I go for walks. I listen to podcasts. The other day, I put on the Wall Street Journal's Potomac Watch podcast. They talked about this. So question, Mackie, are you surprised by how much attention this received? And if so, I'm kind of curious if you think this is a reflection of interest in charter schools, which are still kind of exotic and misunderstood to a lot of people, or maybe this is just part of the larger kind of confusing narrative about public education. What, what do you think? Well, I have to say, I think it's a little bit of both, Bill. Um, this is the third time that Credo has come forward with a charter school study, mm-hmm. and there's something about building um, an audience over time that I think has played out here. Um the news about charter schools is obviously high of high interest across the country. Um, politics are are at a pitched fever at this point mm-hmm. uh, around how public education is organized and delivered. Um, the news in this study, I think, is is noteworthy in and of itself. So that adds to the um, to the interest. And finally, I think in this post COVID world in which we sit, there is a deep interest, hunger, need, uh, desire for information about how we can improve education so that school students who are uh, have been affected by the pandemic actually have um, a future pathway to better results. I want to get into the highlights of what the uh, study found, Mackie, but first let's talk a little bit about what exactly charter schools are. Uh, they've been in existence, I think, since about 1991, if I'm not mistaken. I think the first one was opened in St. Paul, Minnesota. You are correct. I, uh, I worked in the governor's office in the early 1990s when we were keenly aware of what was going on in the likes of Minnesota and, and Wisconsin and other states with charters. So I, I just happen to know this is off the top of my head. Um, but a few misconceptions, Maggie. First of all, a lot of people think that charter schools are private schools. Well, yes, they do. Um, and, and I should ma- mention that the title of our report is, as a matter of fact, semicolon, the National Charter School Study. Three. And the reason we did that was because they're so, even now, after 30 years of having charter schools available as options for parents and families, uh, there is still a tremendous misconception about what charter schools 
are and how they operate. Charter schools are public schools that are operate under special legislation in 45 states. Mm-hmm. And they are empowered as public schools to operate outside of the traditional administrative structures of local school districts. They are given a degree of flexibility in order to design programs that they believe will adequately or superiorly serve students and their families, but they're only empowered for a limited term. That's the term of the contract. That's the charter. And at the end of that, they have to report to an authorizing body that uh, reviews their performance. And as the legislation requires, if the performance of the school is not adequate, if they are not performing well, the authorizer has the discretion to intervene with them or to shut them down. So it's a very different operating style than what we see in traditional districts across the United States. Okay. Second misconception, Mackie, uh, is the opinion that charter schools are parasitic. In other words, they steal money from public schools. So as a public school, it's a really difficult challenge for a public school to steal money from another public school. Can't quite get my mind around that. But um, at the core of this, is, uh, I think, an operating assumption that the local school district somehow has um, a prerogative to control every single dollar going into public education. Right. And they ought to be able to maintain that. Uh, I would argue that that's probably only fair if, in fact, the district school is performing well and that kids are getting a good education. Where that's not the case and families have decided to go elsewhere, uh, where those other schools are public schools, those dollars still remain in the public domain. Okay. And then the third misconception is that they are elitist in the sense that they don't welcome low-income underperforming kids. And maybe, Mackie, that ties into the misperception that they're private schools. Well, it's really interesting because the vast majority of charter schools operate in the absolute worst neighborhoods of urban districts. Right. And they are intentionally located there in order to provide minority families and families in poverty with um, educational choice. And as we saw in the study, the majority of urban charter schools do extremely well in providing education uh, to their children. The gains that those students get is far greater than what they would have gotten had they gone to the local district school down the street. Okay, let's get into the study now. So uh, what you looked at was year-to-year progress. This is from the years 2015 to 2019. So this is pre-COVID, right? This is pre-lockdown data we're looking at. So the biggest takeaway I saw was charter school students experiencing average learning gains of additional six days in math, 16 days in reading. Were you surprised by this? Well, yes. Um, I I will take a step back and say this is the third study. When we Uh, published our first study, the results were the other direction, that in both reading and math, charter school learning was not as good as the district schools those students otherwise would have attended. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was a a big clarion call for charter school operators and their supporters across the country. The second time, which was in 2013, uh, we found that in both reading and math, they've made progress, but the absolute level of of progress. They were a little bit better in reading and they were about the same in math. Well, two data points don't actually create a trend. So we had no idea what we were going to see this third time. We didn't know uh, whether the expansion of the charter school community by several thousand schools meant that the results would would 
taper back down or whether we would see a continuing rise. And so when we see that there's positive gains in both subjects after the 10-year interval since our last study, this is actually a really important finding. Is just as simple Nikki, as a case of schools finding their stride or is your sense that charter schools are just kind of learning along the way and doing things better? I mean, I know we're talking about data and, and you don't want to come to a conclusion based on this, but I'm just kind of curious as to the turnaround because we're talking a decade ago, 15 years ago, schools were struggling. 15 years later, charter schools are actually doing much better. They're progressing. Yeah, it's a really great question, Bill, because the evidence as we probed it showed a couple of different things. Mm -hmm. uh, we wanted to make sure that the effect that we saw was real and to try to explain it as much as possible. Right. And so the first idea we had was, oh, maybe the new schools that have opened up are a lot better and they're basically dragging the sector with it. And that turned out not to be the case. While the new schools are doing well, they're not doing as well as the older schools. And so when we probed, well, how are the old, older schools managing to do better? we could see within the individual trends of schools that schools were getting better over time. And that is a phenomenon that in and of itself is a pretty important finding because that's not something that you see um, on the district side of the equation. Right. And I think one thing worth clarifying is that you're not suggesting that this is a panacea, that everything is magically wonderful in the world of charter schools. You still, you still find troubles out there, don't you? Oh, sure. Um, the, the news is not completely homogeneous. I mean, there are some extremely bright spots and I hope we'll get a chance to talk about those in a moment. Yes. But the fact remains that across the nation, there are still a substantial percentage of charter schools that are not doing well in educating their students. Remember, we're looking at academic performance as measured by pro academic progress from one year to the next. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that we look at. And we found that there were substantial shares of charter schools in both reading and math that just weren't as good as the district schools. Now, if you think about the fact that most charter schools are urban and most district schools are urban and the history of urban district schools is nothing great, then not being better than that is a pretty sad place to be. All right. So let's talk about why a charter school succeeds, Mackie, if there is such a thing as a formula of success here, because it seems to me you have several moving parts going in. One would be the business model, which is how the charter is established. How is the school run? Second would be management. That would be the administrative side and the faculty side. I, by the way, I have a bias here. I have a niece who teaches at a charter school in Charleston, South Carolina, so I happen to be very fond of the concept. Um, but there is a factor of administrators and teachers. And then thirdly, the kids themselves. So as you look at these schools that are succeeding, Mackie, what what would you attribute to? Is it is it the plan itself or is it the execution of the plan? Yes, yes, and yes. Okay. Um, when, when we probed the data, what we found was that the oversight bodies seem to be getting more um, adept mm -hmm. at discerning good applications from not so good applications. And mm -hmm. so, as I mentioned before, the new schools that are coming online are, are actually producing strong results relative to district schools. That is a change in and of itself. So the authorizer function is getting better. Terrific. We find that um, schools are getting better over time, and a large uh, driver of that is whether or not the school is a member of a charter management organization, a network of charter schools that are managed by a central entity. We found that schools that are part of charter networks actually produce even larger gains for their students than standalone charter schools. 
Um, and finally, you asked about the students themselves. Yes. Um, the one of the sort of hackneyed criticisms of charter schools over time is that they um, are selective in some way about the students that they admit. Now, the law is very clear that charter schools are not allowed to be selective on admissions. They must take all students who apply. If there are more students that apply than there are seats available, they must select by a lottery process so that everybody has a fair shot. Well, so the question still remains, is there something going on uh, that makes the population going to charter schools look different than the schools, the students that go to district schools? And so we did an extensive analysis to see if that was the case. What we found was that, in fact, that's not it. On the basis of demography, charter schools enroll larger shares of minority and poverty students than attend even the district schools down the street from them. But more importantly, when you look at their academic preparation, what we find is that charter schools enroll greater proportions of kids with low levels of achievement and smaller proportions of kids with high levels of achievement or preparation. And so at no point across the continuum are we able to identify a pervasive practice that everybody seems to believe, um, all the critics seem to believe is, is going on about charter schools. It just didn't show up in the data at all. So let's discuss, Mackie, why charter schools are improving, but overall public education lags. I have some really just depressing stats I'm going to throw at you here in a few minutes on public education. But here you have a report that says, look, from 2015 to 2019, we saw gains in reading. We saw gains in math. But I don't think, Mackie, in most public schools across America, you can show such glowing numbers. So what are charter schools doing, Mackie, that conventional public schools are not? So I should say at the outset that our ability to discern the mechanisms yeah. within schools are pretty limited because we're looking at a large population of global statistics about them. Right. But we do see this improvement over time. And what we have discerned is that the DNA of charter schools rests in the authorizing legislation and the policy framework that they set up, which is the flexibility that charter schools get in order to design their programs. They can pick how many days they go to school. They can pick how long the school day is. They can pick how long the school year is. They can arrange staffing however they wish. They can choose their curriculum. They can choose their modes of instruction. They have a lot of discretion about how they deliver the education to the students that they educate. That's great. On the other hand, at the end of their charter, they have a much more certain degree of accountability than district schools have faced ever. And so the likelihood of showing up at the end of five or seven years or whatever the term of the charter is um, with a record of performance that's going to be highly scrutinized um, is much higher for charter schools. And we think the balance there of the flexibility with the real risk of, of accountability um, on the part of the authorizers is the sort of secret sauce that gets people thinking about adapting little bits and little bits and little bits and gets better over time. Does a study like this, Mackie, get traction within the world of education administration? In other words, let's say you're running the LAUSD or the San Francisco USD close to where we live. Do you look at the study and think, geez, maybe we need to kind of shake up the equation. We need more charter schools. Or do you think that maybe 
administrators is very wishful thinking. Administrators look at this and think it's time for us to run our schools the way the charters are, or or it's just there's too much of a wall between charter schools and the other public schools. So I probably will sound a little Pollyanna-ish about this, but mm-hmm. I don't think that districts are monolithic. Um, yeah. I think that there's a lot of variation across school districts, and I think they they face differing circumstances across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, I will also just, I will extend grace to believe that everyone in K-12 education at this point is desperate for clues about how to do things better because our students have been so harmed over the last few years. Um, I think that certainly at the state level, the reception that this study has gotten among state leaders, even those that do not have a strong public support for charter schools, has been stronger than I would have expected. Um, I have heard from a few district superintendents that are um, interested in learning more. Um, They're interested in a level of uh, mechanics and on the ground change that we can't help them with. But we can certainly point them to schools that are doing exceptionally well in their neighborhood that they could actually go talk to to get the answer to that. You said, Maggie, that we're having a, a moment in the great education debate. I mean, you've You've been in Hoover. I think you were at Hoover before I were. You were one of the first people I met, actually, when I came to Hoover. Uh, I was one of the first peoples. <laughs> <laughs> I think you invited me to play squash, actually, which I think probably would have been very bad for my health because I think you would have run me over the court like crazy. But no, you've been studying education for some time, Maggie. And I, I just I wonder if you think we're entering a new phase in the in the conversation. I study politics for a living. Uh, I will take you back to the 2021 governor's race in Virginia, where a fellow named Glenn Youngkin, a, uh, a venture capitalist with no political experience, was running an uphill campaign for governor uh, against a former governor. And Yunkin landed on the issue of education. His advisors didn't think it was a good idea, but Yunkin pursued with it. Here's what Yunkin was saying in the closing days of the campaign, Mackey, quote, it all starts with recognizing that our curriculum has gone haywire. So on day one, we're going to ban teaching critical race theory in our schools. The crowd applauds. Day one, day one, that became his chant. What he was seizing on, Mackey, was the situation in Loudoun County where parents were upset about uh, a rather woke curriculum. This was kind of a shock to Virginians because Loudoun County is, you know, an exurb of Washington, D.C. You wouldn't expect it there, but this was going on. And it was a surprise. It was a surprise that Yunkin won. It was a surprise that this issue had such potency. And this was pre, this was, you know, right after COVID, just kind of after lockdowns. So I just wonder, Mackey, if you think that we are just headed into a very large conversation about the state of schools. Well, I think that conversation is actively underway. Um, I I would say that um, at the time that those conversations occurred and that Youngkin had his campaign platform, we didn't really have a good understanding of how badly kids were impacted by the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I would say that the conversation that happens now is actually less focused on curriculum and less focused on banning books and libraries than what the heck are we doing to recover the academic uh, life of these students? That is, I think, the conversation that we are we are about today. And there is deep interest, deep concern, deep worry that the efforts that we are trying now to try to restore student learning, if mm. they're not effective, Um, that we are basically handing an entire generation a life sentence of under productivity and under preparation. Right. So So I think it's it's a timely issue, but I don't think it's focused in on the cultural wars that you were discussing a little bit. Right. So, yeah. So Yunkin went for the headline. He went for the culture war. He went for wokeism. But what you're suggesting is that outcomes is really what's what's the debate here. 
Well, I think that's right. And um, it's not just because I'm an outcomes kind of guy, but um, I, I think that there is now broader recognition that what kids learn in school materially affects not only their own life chances, but the life, the, the, the livelihood, the economic well-being of communities and states and the nation as a whole. And the, the outlook isn't particularly positive right now. So I do think that this is a reckoning that was already due before the pandemic, but having parents look over the shoulders of kids while they were at home trying to do remote learning they got to see what was going on in school. They got to see whether teachers were doing a good job helping kids address their challenges or their, you know, their stumbling blocks on their learning path mm -hmm. and didn't like what they saw. And now that we have more data about how badly kids were affected, the combination of those two things, parent concern and now education policy leader concern, I think, combine for a very powerful motivation to take a deeper look at how we can do this better. That would be my cue, Mackie, to give you some very depressing data, which I'd like you to explain to me. So this is the October 22 National Assessment of Education Progress Report, NAEP for short, NAEP. It gauges fourth and eighth grade proficiency in reading and math. In California, here's what NAEP found, Mackie. 85% of Black sixth grade students and 79% of Hispanic sixth graders do not meet state math standards. Let me repeat that. 85% of Black sixth graders, 79% of Hispanic sixth graders do not meet state math standards. Among economically disadvantaged 11th graders, Mackie, 83.5% didn't meet state math standards, five out of six students. 55% didn't meet state English language art standards. NAEP also looked at fourth grade reading and performance gap between white and minority students. Mackie, the gap was, in NAEP's words, quote, not significantly different than it was in 1988. Let me repeat that. Not significantly different than it was in 1988. This is before charter schools. We're talking 35 years in California and Mackie with no progress. And by the way, the state of California right now spends about $24,000 per kid. Back in 1998, it was about $11,200. So it's not that we're not putting money. We're not getting outcomes. So I know we could have an entirely different podcast on this, but why does a state like California just continually languish like this? I mean, this is this is almost criminal, these numbers. Well, I, I think we could talk for a very long time about how we got to where we are. Mm -hmm. um, the bottom line for me um, is that we have a legislature that is essentially captured by a set of interests that are not interested in student outcomes. That's not where they want the focus to be. They want the focus to be on resources going to the members of their organizations. And we have now um, more than two decades worth of a record of repeated legislative action that advances the interests of adults over the interests of kids with some expectation that the great anonymous somebody is going to take care of this someplace else. Right. And uh, as, as we talk about in our team and we talk about uh, when we're talking with policy leaders, uh, somebody doesn't work here. There is no somebody. And so we are now reckoning uh, in a very real way with the fact that we have harmed cohort after cohort after cohort of kids. Um, with policies and procedures that protect um, and, and completely insulate, I should also say, um, uh, educators and administrators in over the uh, the interests of kids. Mm -hmm. If that's not selling the seed corn, I don't know what is. 
Right. Um, what is the outlook for charter schools in California? I don't want to make this too much of a California-centered podcast, but I'm concerned oh, in this re- regard. I'm concerned in this regard. So Jerry Brown, the previous governor of California, uh, he was interesting. He was a Democrat, but he was not necessarily beholden to teachers' unions. He was a former mayor of Oakland, and I think he created two charter schools when he was uh, mayor of Oakland. So he was not anti-charter. You know, fast forward to the current governor, Gavin Newsom, who I think before the pandemic, Mackey, he signed legislation that basically makes it easier for local districts to deny uh, charters, uh, a, a recharter, if you will. In other words, just just gave them kind of wider leverage for for you know denying renewals. So. If you're looking at charter schools in California, what is the outlook? Is it is, is it strong? Is it neutral? Is it negative? How would you assess it? I think it has been a struggle right. uh, for the better part of the last decade. Um, and I think it's going to continue to be a struggle. Uh, where I see the, the potential flashpoint here is exactly what we were talking about, which is that with the exception of our state policy leaders in California on education, um, there's a growing recognition among other electeds and among families and communities that we're spending a lot of money on education and we are not getting results. The results for California charter schools in the latest study um, was was substantially positive. It wasn't perfect. They were not as strong in math as they could have been. But um, there has been a growth in the number of charter schools across the state. Um, the newer schools continue to contribute positively to student learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think families, as more charter schools come online and they generate more waiting lists than they have seats for, there is a political block there that is extremely motivated to protect that, um, whether or not they can convince their state legislators to um, buck the party line, which is, all things good for uh, for educators. Uh, it remains to be seen, but I think that there the potential for for that block to be effective in shaping legislation going forward is stronger than it's ever been. Whether it's enough to be strong to block some of the um, hindering intentions of the legislature remains to be seen. Have you and your research team, Mackie, taken uh, any looks at homeschooling? You know, there's very little data on homeschooling, so it's not a lack of interest on our part. Uh, yeah. But uh, once a family decides to remove a child from the public system and take education into their own hands, there's very little information that we can see. They they don't necessarily follow whatever the curricular um, requirements are, and we don't have any testing on them to know how they're doing. It was understandable during the pandemic that a lot of families took their children's education in hand because the alternative was so poor. Schools were closed. Kids were at home. But um, as a growing movement, it's a little bit concerning that we have no line of sight on whether or not homeschooled children are being adequately prepared. I'm curious, I'm curious to how you would study it, Mackie, because if you look at pre and uh, post pandemic data, uh, according to the Census Bureau, households uh, before the pandemic, about 5.4% of American households had at least one homeschooled kid. After the pandemic, it's up to 11%. Well, so I don't actually believe the 11%. I have to tell you, I think that that, really? that number was um, obtained during a period where there were still a lot of open closure, open and closed and open and closed. So I think that number will come down. 
Okay. But I think it is the case that a lot of families have decided to remove their children. Mm -hmm. um, how would I go about that? Well, the state constitution in every single state has the requirement to educate children. Mm -hmm. And while the details of that requirement change from state to state, the state still has a vested interest in preparing the next generation of citizens, um, both academically and um, and socially, culturally, to be able to take their place in society. I would say that that makes it a realistic option to suggest that students have to check in at various points along the way to demonstrate what they know so that the, uh, the function that states are required to complete uh, can, be, can be satisfied. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a bit more about what schools are doing after uh, COVID. Uh, Mackie, you and your credo researchers have been looking at learning patterns in states to see how recovery efforts will affect students' academic careers. And here's your conclusion. I'm going to quote most of the programmed school districts, most of the programs school districts have implemented to address COVID learnings uh, loss are doomed to fail. Let me repeat that. Most of the programs school districts have implemented to address COVID learning loss are doomed to fail. You, you could not have chosen bleaker words than that, but why are they doomed to fail? Well, very simply, no one's done the math. The solutions that they've chosen are to add on additional instructional time, even if that instructional time is of unbelievable high quality, which one could question. Mm -hmm. um, the students that need the most help in recovering their learning loss are also students who learn at the slowest possible pace. So, even if you're delivering high quality instruction, the uptake of students may not be as high as, um, as we want, particularly in the most damaged students. And so if you add up the limited number of extra instructional hours that are being offered, even at optimum levels, and the fact that the students who need it the most are acquiring it at a lower rate than the average kid, you cannot make it up on time. It's very simple. The math just doesn't work out. So that year is gone. Well, no, I don't no. think that's the case. I think that there are opportunities to actually fundamentally change the rate at which kids learn, but it requires that we do very different things in the classroom and we require a very different level of quality in the instruction that kids get. That is something that in many, many states um, is is a bridge too far. Because the establishment's just too rigid. It just will not adapt. It just, uh, is it is a problem, Mackie, that it won't adapt or it won't admit that there's a problem? Because you know, there's, there's such a thing as denial and acceptance. So you're an astute journalist um, and you know that there's often the public spoken game and then there's the game in the back room. Right. The public spoken game is there's no problem. The game in the back room is, I believe, holy heck, what the heck, what, what are we going to do? And mm -hmm. the degree of effort that would be required to produce a successful solution there is out of reach yeah. politically, economically, you name it. But, you know, I'm curious about the public side of things, Mackie, and here, and again, we'll go back to California in this regard. If you watch ballot initiatives in California, the easiest way to kill a ballot measure in California is to trot out a teacher 
a nurse and a firefighter, like the village people, if you will, and put them in that and have them say, we think this is what's bad for California. And why, Mackie? Because those three people represent what's good, a firefighter, a nurse and a teacher. Teachers were played a very prominent role in a recent ballot initiative, Mackie, which had to do with Proposition 13. For our listeners who don't know what Prop 13 is, it's a cap on property tax in California. It's why Mackie and I can live within proximity of Stanford University. Without Prop 13, we'd be goners, I think. Uh, but there was an effort to change Prop 13 and blow the cap off it on the property side of the tax. And the folks running the campaign decided the best way to sell this tax was to trot out teachers and say, this is what's best for schools. It will give us money that we need. And Mackie, that thing bombed at the at the box office. It was it just got crushed by voters. And I wonder if maybe it was kind of bad thinking that uh, people upset with the pandemic, people upset with lockdown, and people probably seeing seeing way too many teachers on Zoom and protesting. And yeah, we all saw the union leader in Chicago who was doing a Zoom call from the Caribbean and so on and so forth. I just wonder if teachers have maybe lost a little luster when it comes to be sales pitch pitch people and salespeople. Well, once again. I think that there is a big difference between the manipulations of teachers by the unions and the actual rank and file attitude and disposition of teachers. So I want to be very clear that I am not anti-teacher at all. Um, I I think that there are a variety of points of view on on this. Um, Where I think the unions actually are brilliant in their strategy is that the degrees of freedom between any one citizen in California and a fireman, a nurse, or a teacher are about zero, right? Like we all have connections there. And so your, your, the, the strategy here is that you're not going to, you're not going to undermine your, your, your cousin or your sister or your brother-in-law. You're not going to take action that harms them directly. And so the implicit, uh, you know, it has less to do with what they say on the screen than it mm-hmm. is about the fact that they are they are tapping your very intimate network by saying, don't touch this. And right. I think it's brilliant. And unfortunately, I don't think it represents um, both the best interests of the states, nor necessarily the the, the majority view of, of teachers. Right, Cal- I can't speak Cal- about nurses and firemen. I don't know. Right, but in California, Mackie, you would have seen closed schools. And also, if you lived here in, let's say, the Bay Area, you would see teachers on strike in Oakland during the school year. Before the pandemic, you saw teachers on strike in Los Angeles during the school year. And I grew up in a time when teachers didn't do this during the school year. It was considered not uh, not cricket to do that to kids. You're right. Okay. Uh, let's go back to charter schools for a bit, Mackie. Uh, news yesterday, the Supreme Court declined to hear a case focused on a dispute over a North Carolina charter school's dress code, of all things. And hear me out. This is the Charter Day School, which is located outside of Wilmington, North Carolina. It's barred um, girls from wearing pants as part of an attempt to promote what the school calls chivalry. Interesting choice of words. Um, backed by the ACLU, some parents sued over the policy, uh, arguing that the dress code amounted to sex-based discrimination, which is illegal under the 14th Amendment. The Charter School responded that the policy isn't sexist. Besides, it's not a government-run institution not bound by the Constitution, and this is the crux of the court matter. So what we have a debate here is over whether charter schools are private entities or public state actors, if you will. And this, Mackie, ties, I think, into the next chapter in the charter school saga, which is religious charter schools. Uh, the state of Oklahoma earlier this month approved the nation's first religious charter school. Um, it is uh, run by uh, St. Isidore of Seville Catholic Virtual School, run by Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Oklahoma City and the Diocese of Tulsa. The question here, Mackie, is I don't want to push you on the side of religion or not, but 
are we going to see more creative ways to implement charter schools? I mean, because the idea of putting the church behind it, that's a creative solution. Now it gets into complicated constitutional questions, but to me, it's also thinking outside the box. So um, I, I do think that there is both a need and an interest in creating more charter schools in the United States. Right. Um, I, I think that the specific instance in Oklahoma um, is a, a carefully orchestrated test mm -hmm. to see if if it's possible to use the charter framework to edge closer to more of a private school slash voucher solution. Right. Um, my my own um, position on this is that there are religious organizations that operate charter schools today, but right. they do not include a religious component. And so really the step over the line here is the uh, expressed intentionality of making this a religious education experience for the students. I do not think that that actually aligns with either the Oklahoma charter school law or um, the well-proven um, distinction between church and state, particularly in education, that um, there's a huge body of law for. So I would be very surprised if this stands. Uh, and I would be extremely surprised if the diocese doesn't return to a different solution in order to obtain public funding, which is what their ultimate art, uh, interest is, um, right. in order to serve students. Right. That's one difference here. I think San Isidro would be entirely government financed. If you go to New York City, for example, Mackey, um, there are Hasidic schools which receive you know, public dollars to various programs. So it's not that religious schools don't get government money. In this case, the uh, the charter school would be entirely government financed. But also, Mackie, it's a question whether or not the charter school is a quote-unquote state actor. You're absolutely right. And the refusal of the state, uh, of the Supreme Court yesterday to hear the case and allow the appellate decision, which was that charter schools are public institutions and therefore must respect the constitutionality and the um, protections for students um, is a very clear signal that charter schools are public schools, they're public institutions, and therefore um, the dress code discrimination was uh, considered illegal. Okay, so Mackie, Credo's first charter school study was 2009, if I'm not mistaken. Credo's second charter school study was 20, I want to say 2013. Correct. Okay, so now we have a 2023 study. When will the fourth study be done? That is a really interesting question. And I have to say the ink wasn't even dry on this study before people were asking for the next one. And I understand why, because we've had a pandemic. Mm -hmm. But the barrier to doing the next study is we've had a pandemic. Right. And uh, that has caused a real disruption in the programs for assessing how much students know in 2020, about the first thing that happened when governors ordered schools to be closed was that state education department leaders went to the U.S. Department and sought waivers on the testing program for the spring of 2020. Right. In 2021, things were still in a pretty significant state of disruption. There was some testing in some places. It wasn't complete. It wasn't great. 2022, we started to get back to a little bit of a cadence of testing. And that was the first sort of signal that we could really see a pretty consistent, reliable picture. And mm -hmm. we've just had the second season in 2023. Well, it's gonna be at least another three years 
before there's enough data to be able to create the kind of study that we did this last time. And it's not clear to me that uh, we aren't going to encounter a growing dissatisfaction with accountability. Uh, we, we essentially don't have accountability on the district side of, of public education these days. Uh, and I'm not sure that state leaders are, are rushing to try to reinstate that. So the more they back off of accountability, the less important testing is, the signals are, are not aligned with, with rigorous assessment. It's not clear to me that in the out years going forward, we're going to see assessments actually be as reliable as they used to be. So right. I think all bets are off until we actually can take a look at what gets produced in the, in the next three or four years. So if you could change this equation, Mackie, what is the first thing you would change in everything you just described in terms of the frustrations and getting data in terms of the resistance to, to doing this? What would be the first step in changing things? It's an interesting question because I, I think you have to be very strategic about where you want to where you want to lay your your knife edge uh, right. in order to start creating new space. Um, my own idea is that I believe that there are uh, schools on that are not charter schools that are other public schools that I think actually deserve the kind of flexibility uh, that charter schools enjoy. That I think they are sufficiently high performing that their teacher teams and their school teams. Um, actually ought to be able to do a little bit more creative programming for their for their schools. Um, and because they're high performing, the risk on the accountability side would be negligible. I'd like to see more of that start to happen mm -hmm. um, because I do think that this general framework of flexibility for accountability creates the right kind of incentives. Um, I think a full frontal assault on this is is probably not it, it, it's not worth even trying because I don't think it would be successful. The the change you just mentioned, Mackie, does that come from within a school district, or does that have to come from a higher power? I guess what I'm getting at is who has to drive this at the end of the day. Does it start all the way with a leader, like a governor in a state? Does it does it go down to a legislature or say uh, whoever the education secretary is, or is it more close to the level of schools themselves, the people who run the schools? Well, obviously. Efficiency criteria would make the governor the obvious choice. Right. Um, the the kind of you know single pen swipe that could change things um, is certainly within reach for mm -hmm. some governors. Um, but I think it is not a topic that most governors would want to take up. Right. Um, legislators, the legislatures divide very very clearly on whether or not they are um, willing to entertain education improvement as a focus of their legislation. Um, and again, I think the uh, the costs of business doing that are really, really high and without a lot of certainty of outcomes. So my answer is, is, is that we should allow the sort of a thousand flowers blooming strategy that we started charter schools with. Mm -hmm. I think we should try to, to, to do something like that, which is a more localized reaction. But I think you get you'd get more action at that level than you would by trying to press these larger levels. And who's going to drive the expansion of charter schools, Maggie? Is it going to be parents? Is it going to be, let's say, benefactors, philanthropists? Is it going to be more business-driven, let's say, because you can draw a line between businesses wanting to have smarter kids coming into the workforce. And so you say, okay, these schools produce better kids. We want more charter schools. Who's going to drive it? I believe that parents are going to be an important driver here because they're going to demand 
high quality options for kids. Uh, I believe that there are other stakeholder groups that probably are starting to lean in on this. Right. Um, you mentioned business owners, and that's certainly a, an important stakeholder group. Um, I, I think ultimately, um, state policy leaders in education have to face the fact that they have large numbers of schools that are not performing, and that that's an unsustainable position um, to maintain both for them individually as leaders and for the state as a whole. So I think we'll, we'll see some state pressure from the education side of, of the policy equation. Okay, Mackie, final thoughts. Uh, anything we did not get into this podcast, especially at charter schools, you'd like to say before we sign off? Well, the one thing I thought we might cover is the fact that our study revealed that there are uh, schools that do not only a phenomenal job of making progress for kids across the board, even better than the state average of growth, but they're actually able to ensure that no particular student group falls behind in their learning. We call these gap busting. Gap schools. busters, yes. And I really think that this is not only an extremely important finding in terms of the welfare of those individual students, but it shows policy leaders and other educators that allocation of resources can be done differently to get much better results. And I think it's that evidence proof that is the spark that can start some of these wheels that we've been talking about rolling forward for kids. Mm -hmm. And you were surprised to find these gap busters. We were. And we were certainly surprised to find the number of them and the fact that uh, they are also found in some of these charter networks, which means that this is this is a practice that can not only occur, but it can be scaled. Mm -hmm. And final question on charter schools, Mackie, I think the balance is like 85% urban and 15% rural right now across America. I think that's a little high. A little high. So it's less than 85%. Where do charters need to expand? Would you would you expand them in so-called flyover states? Would you expand them across the greater U.S.? Do you need to put them into, into more urban areas? Or is it just as simple as saying we need to go where the lower performing districts are? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I'm certainly in favor of uh, encouraging expansion where district level performance is not strong, mm -hmm. uh, but that's not limited to just urban areas. And I don't want to condemn all urban areas as poor because that's also not true. Right. Um, I think there ought to be um, a, a sort of a preference for charter location in communities that need to be served well. Um, mm -hmm. And that would be largely urban, but there are many suburbs where the students are not making progress either. Same for rural areas. Okay. And finally, Mackie, uh, we haven't spent any time on it, but let's do a little bit. And that's really the role that education plays inside the Hoover Institution. A lot of outsiders think of Hoover, they think economics, they think foreign policy, but education's a big part of what I do, of what we do. It's a big part of what our director, Condoleezza Rice, believes in, in terms of improving this society. You're certainly right. Um, we are incredibly lucky that Dr. Rice um, has not only a professional interest um, as, as a world leader in education, but she's got a personal investment in making sure that we move the needle for kids in the United States. Um, uh, she recently appeared on national news and called our situation, particularly after these NAEP results, sort of not only a, a crisis, but really a condemnation of, of our ability to prepare our next generation. Um, she's backed up her convictions with strong support for uh, growing the amount of work that we do in 
education at the Hoover mm -hmm. Institution. Um, and she's been a phenomenal ally in terms of being able to uh, build bridges in places that we haven't been able to do that before. So um, it's a great set of team members and teamwork. Uh, and I hope that that um, we're able to continue that in the future. And I know you're going on a deserved break here. Uh, what are you going to be working on this fall, Mackie? What are we what are we going to see from you next? We are in the midst of conducting uh, a national panel, opinion panel. Uh, we are looking at some of those stakeholders uh, that might be strong advocates for education change that we were discussing just a few moments ago. Um, we certainly have a lot of, of follow-on clarification and amplification work that we want to do about this charter study. Mm -hmm. um, and we're actually thinking differently um, about helping communities understand what the challenges are that they will face in the next five to 10 years as all kinds of trends coincide and force um, a, a degree of flexibility and change in the K-12 education system that they've never been required to do before. Mm -hmm. Well, Mackie, keep it up. You're doing the Lord's work, and I hope you're pleased with the response that your charter school study got, because it's just, it's a needed conversation this country has to have. Well, it got me on your podcast, so that's good. <laughs> and in the Thank Wall Street you. Journal, so congratulations. Mackie Rehman, thanks again for doing the podcast. Thank you. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Tell your friends about us. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled H-O-O-V-E-R-I-N-S-T. Credo, the Center for Education Research Outcomes, is on Twitter. Its handle is at Credo at Stanford. That's a little tricky, so let me spell it out. It's C-R-E-D-O. A-T-S-T-A-N-F-O-R-D at Credo at Stanford. And if you go there, it'll link you to Credo's website where you'll find the Charter School Digital Report in its full glory. I mentioned our website at the beginning of the show. That's hoover.org. While you're there, you should sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers you, uh, keeps you updated on what Mackie Raymond and her Hoover colleagues are up to. That's emailed to you weekdays. You can also sign up for Hoover's Pod Blast, which delivers the best of our podcast each and every month to your inbox. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with a new installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. We'll be talking about California with my colleague Leo Hanian and Jonathan Maldroides. Till then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.